Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk on Assuming the Center from our audio collection titled, The Church is Politics. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that as we work through this material, you would give us clear minds and and clean hearts and a readiness to follow your word and your spirit wherever they lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a talk on what I call assuming the center, and there's going to be an awful lot in it. I'm going to be tried. I'm, I'm going to cram a bunch of uh, things in it that e- many of these elements could be unpacked uh, and become talks in their own right. Um, and what I'm trying to do is is uh, sort of juice the Q and A time, is <laughs> generate a, just whack a number of issues and and get some good questions going. And I'm I'm speaking to you as a Trinitarian Christian. I'm speaking to you as a political conservative, and I'm speaking to you as a Calvinist, and roughly in that order. But I need to begin by noting that everything I argue for here is deeply rooted in the blues. <laughs> Amen, right? Now, what I want to uh, talk about in Assuming the Center um, is uh, not a technique or a trick. Uh, what we're talking about is, to key off of Peter's initial talk, the polis of the, of the church, the new city that God has established in the world, is not just an alternative city over there. It's a new kind of city planted in the middle of all the other cities. So this creates a whole series of um, theological, practical, political problems. If it were, if we could just say, we don't like this city, and just pull up stakes and move over to some area that doesn't have any uh, anything built on it and establish the city of God over there, we could all say, we should all respond with it should be so simple that that's what was attempted actually in the establishment of Massachusetts Bay Colony many of the many of the Puritans um, uprooted were chased out of England and they came over here and they said okay now we're going to build the we're going to build a Christian Commonwealth and it's going to be genuinely Christian. We're going we're gonna to build the city of God. And of course, within a few generations, y- you, you discover that it's not that simple. Right? You, you start having to deal with sin. Uh, ne- subsequent generations of, um, of your people who don't have the same faith that the, uh, the founders of the city had, and you've got all kinds of complicated issues about how do we relate the city of God to the city of man, exactly the same sorts of problems you had back in England, but without all the inertia, but the same problems. So how do we relate this new kind of polis, this new city, the city of God, that's planted in the middle of a messy world, and what's the relationship of this new city to the old cities? Now, as Peter was indicating, uh, the impact of the new city is that it transforms the old cities, but it doesn't transform them like someone hit a light switch. It doesn't transform them overnight. It's not like you plant the new city and then uh, presto, all the cities of man become adjuncts of the city of God. Rather, uh, it this is a process taking centuries and in some on some issues and in some respects it takes millennia to have the city of God affect and transform the city of man. And of course there are many Christians who believe that that the city of God 
is simply holed up and isolated and doesn't ultimately transform the city of man at all. All right, so there are, um, there are Christians who believe that the city of God is sort of established as an outpost, that God wants to attract people into it and train them to be Christians, and then the end of the world, or we die and we go to be with God, um, and that's where the true city is in, in eternity or, or after uh, human history is passed. Our assumption here is that the city of God is intended to transform the cities of man. As, as uh, the passage in Revelation that Peter quoted where the New Jerusalem, which is the, the new city, the, the Christian church, we know it's the Christian church because um, uh, the angel says to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And who's the bride, the wife of the Lamb? Well, the Christian church is the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me a new uh, 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 showed me the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So the Christian church is the new Jerusalem, and that new Jerusalem has tree, uh, trees growing in it, and it says that the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Right, so the nations are healed, put right. Uh, have the, the dislocations are straightened out. The difficulties are overcome. But they are not overcome the way you solve a problem uh, by buying something at a convenience store. They're, it's not overcome overnight. It's not, uh, it's not something that is instantaneously done. And there's a lot of hard work and thorny problems that you have to work through. Uh, Jesus says that it's like um, yeast working through the uh, batch of dough. It's a gradual, slow process. He says it's like a tiny seed that grows up. Uh, you don't know really. You don't really know how it's doing that, and how how is it having the impact that it's having? Now, I said a moment ago that I'm a conservative, but uh, politically conservative, and that is more a description of my temperament than anything else. Because as a practical matter, one of the first things that comes up is, oh, what are you conserving? Well, pretty much nothing, nothing in the world around me. Um, <laughs> You know, do you want to keep that? No. Do you want to keep that? No. Do you want to keep that? No. So I've, uh, um, the word conservative uh, is a problematic word, sort of like fundamentalist. What do you mean when you say you're a fundamentalist? Do you mean that you've got a pickup truck full of dynamite in the Middle East? Do you mean that you like uh, polygamy in Utah? Do you mean that you're opposed to mixed roller skating um, in... <laughs> What is, it, what is a fundamentalist? Um, what is a conservative? Well, you have to say, what, you're, what are you conserving? And then when you recognize what the Bible says about the new polis, the Christian's fundamental orientation needs to be a future orientation. All right, so it makes sense to say you're a conservative. I think that's shorthand. I, I think I can communicate a lot of things that way by saying, yes, I'm conservative and I'm a conservative politically, but it doesn't bear the weight that a lot of Christians currently are putting on it. Right, um, so we're going to have to, and we're going to address that uh, shortly uh, too. So assuming the center that the Christian pastors and elders and, um, and believers, parishioners need to learn uh, to th think of the church as the center of the world. It's the new center of the world. It's the new uh, humanity that God is establishing in Christ. And as we think of the church as the new center, the new um, reality, the, the transforming thing that God has done in the history of the world, thinking about it that way is then going to begin to have those percolating effects outward. And we don't really know 
what those percolating effects are going to look like 100 years out, 200 years out, 500 years out. And, um, and if you, in the course of this conference, if, we're, if we are talking about uh, exegesis of Scripture, if we're talking about what the church is, the centrality of the church, the importance of the church, all of that, the speakers here and, the, and, and I know many of you are on the same page. When we turn to the future and say, okay, what's it going to look like post-millennially, what's this going to look like 500 years from now? Uh, if you detect some differences between the speakers, uh, you're not necessarily crazy. Um, we're, uh, we're not ashamed to think out loud together on some of this stuff, and I think we really need to, I, I think we need to question some of our assumptions, project, speculate a bit, but not cling tenaciously to it because we don't know, our lives are missed, as James says. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, still less uh, 500 years from now. But we want to be thinking about it because if we're not thinking about it, uh, we're just going to, the, the tendency for us as conservative believers will be to just continue to operate in the same well-worn groove. That's a, a prefatory comment. The applications of that may become, I hope, become more obvious as we get into this. So assuming the center, assuming your, the, that the fundamental, your fundamental identity is that of a Christian, that's your, that's your fundamental um, orientation. You can't set that up in a false dichotomy with other, other aspects of your identity. If someone said, well, are you a Christian or an American? Well, those don't displace one another, right? They're not competing. Now, you can make them compete. You can make being an American into an idol, and you can make that your functional god. And that, in that case, do you worship Jesus or America? That question makes sense. But if I attacked Americanism, the idolatry of Americanism, I would do so as an American. I would do so as someone shaped by my culture and language and everything, and, and I can't get out of that. I can't jump out of my skin. I can't... Um, I can't jump off of my own shadow. I, there's, that's not a possible thing uh, to do. So uh, I don't want to set up false dichotomies, but we do want to set up a uh, sort of a theological hierarchical system where we know what the we know what the most important thing is. We know what the other the the lesser things are, and we know how to stack them. We know which way we would go if various demands were made upon our allegiances. So we assume the center, being, a, being Christian, being, um, being Trinitarian, is, I think, our, fundam is, it's our fundamental allegiance. Not being Presbyterian, for example. Not being Reformed, but being Christian. Now, assuming the center, is, there's no way to package this. There's no way to shrink wrap it. There's no way to transmit it to management gurus and church growth seminars. What is it that overcomes the world? Is it not our faith? 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? There's something about believing in Jesus. There's something about believing that God in Jesus is overcoming the world that overcomes the world. All right? and, the, and the world... And the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all the things that make the city shiny, right? all the things that make the city of man attractive, those things are overcome by 
faith, not by doctrinal, not by doctrinal precision, not by having your I's dotted and your T's crossed, not by memorizing the Westminster Confession, but by faith, faith in Jesus. All right, so faith in Jesus overcomes the world. But faith in Jesus doesn't overcome the world in a simplistic way where you have faith in Jesus and then boom, all the kingdoms of man tumble and here we are in the, uh, here we are in the millennium. God wants the growth of the kingdom in the world to be a lot slower and messier than we would like it. Right? God wants it to be slow and messy. And that's why we have to be willing to think out loud and work through some of these things. All right, so, and, and uh, one other thought. When, uh, when you say you're conservative, you say, okay, what, how does the word of God apply to public policy issues? Some of them, I think, are very straightforward and simple. Uh, uh, should, should it be legal to dismember children in the womb? All right, that's a no-brainer. No, right? Because God said to Moses, thou shalt not commit murder. All right, so, so you've, got straight, you've got straight across issues like that. But when you get into other issues, um, you, you need to start, you need to know the Bible a lot more, and you have to know the circumstances, economics, foreign policy. You, there, a lot more study is necessary before we get to, uh, before we get to a responsible biblical conclusion. And when we think we've gotten there, we encounter other Christians who appear to be responsible Christians who've gotten to another, you know, believers in the Bible and believers in Jesus who get to another conclusion. So we have to know how to work th through that. There are some, a handful of relatively minor issues that, that we can say straight across, uh, you know, you, you find a verse that just applies directly to it, even though it's not an earth-shaking thing. So for example, I would be opposed, I'm opposed to chaplains opening, uh, uh, opening uh, uh, sessions of Congress with prayer, because the Bible clearly teaches you shall not make a den of thieves into a house of prayer. Uh, or something, I, or something like that. All right, so um, this faith that overcomes the world can, uh, can be spiked or hampered or hamstrung in various ways. One way is full tilt, full tilt unbelief. Um, and this happens when a man apostatizes, when a man rejects the Bible, gets uh, corrupted by theological liberalism, starts having doubts where he, the Bible says something and he just doesn't believe it anymore necessarily. Well, that's obviously an erosion of faith. If your faith is falling apart into doubts, that's an erosion of faith, and that's not the faith that overcomes the world. But there's another um, problem far more common at least in red state America, which is if you've traveled some distance, you, have, you need to realize that you are smack in the middle of red state America right now. Um, if if um, you're in that situation, um, unbelief frequently adopts what you might call workarounds. Faith is still exercised. Faith in Jesus and faith in the Bible is still exercised. And people still believe in Jesus intently, right? They, they're, devout and pious, but it's very truncated. All right? it's, not, it's not the Bible applied to all of life and practice, but it's Jesus, as, Jesus is my personal Savior, and I have every confidence that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and I have no interest at all in, in what the Bible has to say about public policy issues. And this is a, an escapist or retreatist Thing. And so, so you have many decent Christians who go out into the world and basically function the same way as all their fellow Americans, um, 
adopting the train uh, they adopt the training that they all receive at the business management or the professional school or whatever they just do what everybody else does they keep their own ethical nose clean and and they don't think about what the growth and establishment of the new Jerusalem in our midst is going to do to this system down the road. So they still believe in Jesus intently, but the content of what they believe has shifted in enlightenment-friendly directions. That is, what you believe, uh, how many times have you heard a politician say something like this? My faith is very personal and precious to me, and you can, fill, you can finish the rest of the sentence, right? But right? My, my, my faith is personal and precious. It's the most important thing to me, but I'm not going to let it dictate anything. Uh, I'm not going to let it escape outside of my skull, right? If I, if elected, um, if elected to public office, I promise you that my personal precious convictions will have nothing whatever to do with anything that I say or do um, once I uh, take the oath of office. Um, in which case, someone ought to do that, say that every campaign stop, and then when he gets elected, he needs to embezzle a lot of money and do a bunch of high-handed things, and then when he's caught, he, he should say, look, I promise the American people, I'm personally opposed to embe embezzlement. Uh, my opposition to embezzlement is a very deep and precious thing to me, but I promised you <laughs> and I'll roll the tape. Do you see me promising that I would not let any of my personal ethical convictions uh, affect any of my public behavior? And you voted for that. Right? You were talking about abortion. You weren't talking about embezzlement. Oh, um, <laughs> makes no sense. Now, all of you know, that it, it, uh, and this is one of the things that we have to um, deal with, um, as theologically conservative believers who have an instinctive move to conservative positions. We, you know, you, you, you watch the talking heads or screaming heads shows on, on television where they're, they're doing their, their thing and it's right and left, Mutt and Jeff sort of thing. And generally, your, your position, your theology, your doctrine, your identity is going to be routinely, overtly insulted by one of them and flattered by the other one. Okay, insulted by one and flattered by the other one. We need to grow up in our thinking be adults. The flatterer is not necessarily our friend. Okay, the flatterer is not necessarily our friend. Now, I'm glad that he's pro-life and I'm glad that he's opposing homosexual marriage and okay, check, check, I'm I'm with you on that. And this guy is being taunting and insulting. But when you read some of the, uh, and this is what I'm going to call in a subsequent talk, sort of the Fox News Jesus versus the CNN Jesus, right? We don't want either one. I don't want the, I don't want the Fox News Jesus, and I don't want the CNN Jesus. I want the one who's at the right hand of God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. There are many of the, many of the think tank types Many of the people on w in our political spectrum, uh, neoconservatives, people who are thinking through a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues, are saying some things, and they're they're flattering conservative evangelical Christians. They say, "Come on into the political process. We like you. We're not going to call you names, right?" But then, w and we and and if we're not thinking, we're just going to pile in there and just say, "Okay, uh, because of life issues and sodomy issues and so forth." Uh, you can count on us, but there are other things going on, and we have to. I think we need to uh, 
uh, recover a, a, a much deeper s uh, set of suspicions. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, Samuel Huntington uh, recently argued that basically he argued from a neocon, neocon uh, neo outlook that there is an American creed and the American creed, he said, is Protestantism without God. Oh, isn't that like going to see uh, a play about the uh, uh, Hamlet without the role of the Prince of Denmark in it? What, what do you mean, Protestantism without God? What sort of what sort of sense does that make? And if, if he says, oh, no, I like evangelical believing Christians who really do believe in God, but they can they go home from the neutral public square and they can go home and in private they can believe in God. They can add the God part in their own prayers, their own thoughts. But God is not a condiment. You don't add it later. You don't add him later. Right? Protestantism without God. Um, David Galenter uh, recently wrote a book called uh, Americanism. The, the, the subtitle is something like the world's fourth great or, or the fourth great world religion. Okay? Americanism, the fourth great world religion. And he's trying to write it in a way, and he was overtly writing it in such a way as to be winsome to evangelical Christians. All right, well, to, to describe Americanism as a, as a religion and to do so in a way that's trying to appeal to evangelicals is simply saying, aren't you evangelicals willing to become idolaters? Are you willing to come over here and, and worship with us or, or surrender the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If we do that, for the sake of advancing the pro-life agenda or the anti-homosexual agenda or whatever, uh, we've paid too big a price. We need, to, we need to maintain our identity as citizens of the Christian polis, and we need to relate to all these people with that identity fundamentally uh, uh, at the center. Now, here's another aside before we get to some of the basic, basic principles. In all cultures, at all times, a great deal can be learned by looking at what everyone assumes together. Left wing, right wing, moderate, libertarian, conservative, or anarchist. Um, all of them frequently in one culture will assume the same things. It's easy to look at their debates, what's coming out of their heads, but um, if I watch a show like Hannity and Combs and they're having this fierce, ferocious debate back and forth, um, you need to step back a couple extra steps and say, what, are they, what do they share? What are they assuming together? Right? What are they assuming together? Not just where is the conflict. Um, and oftentimes someone from another country uh, will, uh, will be able to tell you much more uh, quickly how much they're sharing. You know, they're, they're both, they've both got a, a set of assumptions about what is debatable, right? There is a, uh, which, I'm going to get to a, a quote in a moment that addresses that. In our day, virtually, here's one example, virtually everyone assumes the legitimacy of polling as a way of spot-checking what demos, the people, have to say at any given moment. Right? Everybody bows down before the polls. Right? Uh, so if I, if I see a right-wing, left-wing guy uh, debating on television, and, and I say, okay, what uh, what's their Bible? What do they quote all the time? What's their Bible? Now, if it, it, what would it tell you if you saw a political talk show where 
you know, Hannity had his Bible open and was flipping, but it says in Romans, and Combs was saying, no, but you're leaving out Leviticus, and, you know, what would that tell you? That would tell you that this, this is an intramural debate between Christians. How many times have you seen somebody say, the latest polls say, and the other person counters with, ah, but you're leaving out this poll and that poll, or you're, interpreting, you're misinterpreting the polls, that's what they're sharing, right? Now, what they're sharing is a it's a shared faith in the authority of demos, the people. Okay? Now, uh, that, that shows that they're functioning with a common faith. Um, and, and sadly, many Christians, I think, stumble in this way as well. To make up an example, suppose we learn that three out of ten teenagers have had sex by the time they are 14. Conservatives denounce it. Liberals call for more sex ed and our responses differ from one another. That's where the debate occurs. And sometimes these surface clashes can be quite sharp. Hannity and Combs can go at it all they like about sex ed and abstinence programs and everything, but they both believe that three out of 10 teenagers have had sex by the time they're 14. That's shared. Or if it's disputed, someone will say, no, it's five out of 10, and that's because of this other survey or this other poll. Virtually, uh, even though, so even though you've got this debate going, uh, underneath all of this is what can only be described as a profound agreement, a, a deep agreement, a profound agreement. Virtually no one says, how could you know someone like that? I don't believe you. Something like that. I don't believe you. Because what would that do? The whole discussion would come crashing to the ground, right? I don't, I don't accept that authority. I don't, I hate quoting Noam Chomsky, um, but he said something really good. The smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. Right? So narrow the spectrum and then encourage them to really go at it within that spectrum. So you look like, see, they're free speeching. Right? You've got the blue and the light blue really going, hating each other. <laughs> so you allow very lively debate within that spectrum, even, even encourage the more critical and dissident views. This gives, uh, this gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on, while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of debate. Okay, what is the shared assumption? What is the shared belief? Um, I, I love um, uh, David Wells' books, the uh, Whatever Happened to Truth, and you know he's he's got some wonderful uh, thinking, wonderful insights on the deterioration of our culture. But this is the one thing that bothers me about much of his much of his writing is he depends uh, so much for his diagnosis on polling. He he heavily depends on this is the way we are because this is what the pollsters have told us. This activity called polling serves a great didactic and manipulative purpose. For example, homosexual activists are still successfully circulating the Kinsey howler that 10% of the population is homosexual, proving yet again Mark Twain's dictum that the history of our race and each individual's experience are sown thick with the evidence that a truth is not hard to kill and that a lie told well is immortal. Okay, now. But what did Kinsey do when he, did, when he established that 10% of the... He, he 
interviewed a bunch of prison felons, right? <laughs> he interviewed a bunch of people. Uh, he, he interviewed, it's, it's sort of like the, the doctor, local doctor in town, who thinks that everybody in town has a cold because everyone he's seen all that day had a cold. Well, he's the doctor. He's the people come, the people come to when they have a cold. Um, and when you go into, if you interview a bunch of felons or a bunch of sexual perverts, it's not going to be surprising that you find a high incidence of sexual perversion. But that was a lie told well, and it appears to be immortal. Polling is represented to us as a means of measuring what the god Demos is thinking, when in reality it is a powerful tool for manipulating what this figurehead deity is going to do in the future. All right, polling is done far more often to steer you than to inform you. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a rudder. It's a way of manipulating you and shaping you. It's not a way of telling you what is actually going on. These, the people running these things are handlers. Think about it. The basic assumption, and question it, if you question it, you're an idiot, in modern political campaigns is that Clinton is, let's say, Hillary is the nominee for the Democrats and Fred Thompson is the nominee for the Republicans. Say that Clinton is down in the polls this week and then Thompson, say, is down. The whole thing is treated as a horse race, as a way of selling papers and get you to turn to their channel, with one head and then another, and then into the backstretch, neck and neck. Thompson caught up, whoa, photo finished. And we see the strength of this assumption in this. If Thompson were down on the polls by 10%, the week before the election, and then won the election by 5%, the ruling assumption would be that Thompson caught up, not that po polls are radically unreliable. Right? Thompson caught up in the final week of the campaign. Unlike, but this is really important, unlike a horse race where one horse really is in front of the other one. <laughs> right? When you have a horse race, uh, um, we're not we're not radical relativists. There's a horse here and there's a horse there and the finish, the finish line is over here. One horse is in front of the other one. But in this situation, political polling consists of speculation, a whole series of uh, towering speculations grounded on very small, scientifically selected sample sizes. In short, you talk to 2,000 Americans and purport to tell us what 250 million Americans are thinking. Right? You talk to a tiny group, and then you say, the American people feel this way, and it's scientific. And then the next week, you talk to a completely different group of 2,000 people, scientifically selected, and then you get another result, and you say, oh, the American people are shifting, right? Now, and anybody who doesn't see the um, manipulative capacity of this, because that's not to say the American people don't shift. One of the reasons they shift is because they're being steered by polls. They're being told that Demos is speaking. Demos is in the process of speaking, and that helps push people in various directions. Next week, you talk to a different 2,000 Americans, and son of a gun, there's a 10% difference in the answers. Then you represent that as an instance of the 250 million changing their minds. Beautiful, elegantly done, but bogus. All this speculation, for all the, for that's all that it is, once accepted by the masses as scientific, is a great way to herd everybody along in the general direction you wish them to go. Polling is less a finely tuned and calibrated instrument for measuring as it is a cattle prod to keep the voting public mooing contentedly. Now, um, the thing that's uh, astounding about this 
is when when you are told, oh, uh, periodically some uh, uh, some network will do, uh, they'll pull a bonehead maneuver or something. And that is they'll have a call in or uh, we'll open the phone lines. Do you want, would you rather vote for uh, Clinton or Thompson? And they get 5 million people calling in. 5 million people call in. And one of them wins by 5%. And what do they fall all over themselves telling you? This was not scientific. <laughs> no, you, it was too, way too close to common sense to be scientific. It was way too, way too close to actually representing what most, a whole bunch of us think than this discrete system of, of manipulable data that you need shamans and gurus and witch doctors to interpret for you. Um, I don't know how many elections I've seen where everybody over this so-and-so caught up in the last week has been used as this, this fig leaf cover for what should be obviously going on. Now, and so what I'm saying to you is Christians, we serve Jesus. We don't serve Demos. We don't serve the voice of the people. We are Christians. Jesus is Lord, not Demos. And so that's an example of how we ought to look at some political discussion, some political collision, be able to step back as Christians and genuinely occupy a third way, genuinely occupy a third position where we can see that this secular debate that's going on is dependent upon shared secular assumptions. All right? And some of those shared secular assumptions are on the right, some of them are on the left. Some of them insult us, some of them flatter us, but all of them are secular, okay? Now, I, I know that if someone were to come and interview me and get all my political positions down and sort of, you know, run it through the American Conservative Union or, the, you know, whatever, that my positions would come out as someone who's right-wing, right? That's, but, but as Christians, we, that's, that's not our identity, that's not, that's, that's just not our identity. We need to hold, the, hold these positions because of what we believe the Bible to teach, not because of what Demos is saying or what's acceptable, the acceptable realm of discourse. In short, assuming the center means believing what the Bible says about where we are instead of believing what we say about where we are. We don't know where we are. This entails also because we don't drive human history. We, we are God's instruments for accomplishing human history, but we don't have the bird's eye view of it. We don't, we, none of us are standing on the mount with God, uh, watching with him, uh, watching with him as he says, now see what I'm going to do over the next millennium. None of us have that, we, we don't have that information. We have the general trajectory. We know that at the end of the process, the swords are going to be, uh, uh, going to be uh, beaten into agricultural implements and the spears are going to be uh, made peaceful. We know the direction it's going, but we don't know, you know, we, we don't know the details and can't, shouldn't pretend to know the details. We just know that being faithful to Jesus now here in this fundamental way is going to be used by God to bring about that end result. A lot of the debate about faith and faith alone in the Reformed world these days has to do with the way Abraham believed. It was all faith, pure faith. But we really ought to be paying some attention to what Abraham believed. What did Abraham believe? He believed that all the nations would be blessed through him and that he would inherit the world. That's what he believed. That's Romans 
and it wasn't wasn't through law but it was through the righteousness of faith the justice of faith remember um, what Peter said about justice and righteousness being the same uh, being the same word and what is it that overcomes the world it's our faith and when we have faith in God faith in Jesus what we do what, what happens is God uses our faith our worship our hymn singing our uh, involvement in the world, our being salt and light, he uses all those things to establish um, the justice of his gospel. The justice of his polis is established by that means. And we don't know how. You know, Jesus tells a parable, the farmer goes out and he puts seed in the ground and it grows up overnight. And, and Jesus says something very funny there. The farmer doesn't know how. The farmer has no idea. Why, why is this a crop here? Why? Why? Why were certain periods in church history so blessed? And why were other periods in church history in sharp uh, declension? What, what is it that goes on there? Well, faith overcomes the world. And, and when we plant and water and God gives the increase, we don't know how he gives the increase. We, we, we don't know what mysterious way he does that, but we do know that he does that. All of that said, let me just... Um, run through what I believe are some basic political principles that should govern, principles not methods, principles that should govern our interaction with um, uh, the magistrate. Now, and, and, and I've, I've been speaking a lot about Americans, but I, I believe that these are principles, not methods, which means that they are applicable. If you're a Canadian, they're applicable. If you're Polish, they're applicable. If you're a Russian, this is, this is a perennial problem that all Christians everywhere have to work, work through. We must never forget the sovereignty of God. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1. The ruler, the ruler of our nation is not the people, it's not the Congress, it's not the President, not the Supreme Court, not the Constitution. The ruler of our nation is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in his hand, we are under his scepter. The issue is not whether we will, as a nation, make Jesus Lord, but whether his lordship will be for our blessing or our undoing. Okay. Jesus is not going to be made Lord or not by us. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So God has established him, given him the second psalm, uh, ask of me and I'll, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, which includes Idaho, as your possession. And Jesus didn't say, but I don't want Idaho. Right? He said, I bought it, I paid for it, I'm taking it all. all right? So Jesus is the Lord of as he says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go disciple the nations. So our job is to tell the nations that this has happened. Our job is not to talk the nations into letting it happen. Okay, that's, that's a, there's a vast difference. A herald, a proclaimer of the gospel, announces to the nations that Jesus is the king of the nations. He does not try to talk the nations into letting him be the king if they just agree to it, which you probably won't because the world's a bad place. That, if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it. If, you're going to, if you assume that kind of defeat, you're going to attain to that kind of defeat. So, remember the counsel given in the second psalm at the conclusion of the second psalm. The kings of the earth, our rulers included, are exhorted to kiss the son lest he be angry. The sovereignty of God over our political affairs means that we may have only one of two attitudes. 
We may rejoice as we consider how he will bring all his purposes to pass, or we may lament as we confess our own sins. Excluded is the option of being self-righteously indignant about those scoundrels in Washington or worried about whether God will wake up in time to save our country. Christ is not as powerless as the Baal taunted by Elijah. So the first principle is that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords. All competing authorities are idols. Now, subordinate authorities are authorities. There's no authority established except what is established by God. Subordinate authorities are true authorities. Fathers and mothers are subordinate authorities. Pastors and elders are subordinate authorities. Kings, governors, and presidents and parliaments are subordinate authorities and all have their place, right, if they're subordinate. But if they are competing, if they say, no, 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 you can't mention Jesus here, right? We, you, we reject that notion. No conscientious Christian can go along with that. So the first principle is that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. The second principle, there's never any neutrality anywhere. So it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. That's what the king who would rule over Israel had to do. He had to, uh, he had to copy out uh, uh, his own personal handwritten copy of the law for his own use, and he had to he had to write the whole thing down himself. So he was aware of the law that was over him. Right? He, he had to be aware, made aware of the fact that he was not to legislate autonomously or on his own. Psalm 94, shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. Here's a, t this is a wonderful litmus test. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> Kind of funny, I've, I was watching a presidential candidate last night on the television fall all over himself explaining what litmus test he would use for uh, appointing Supreme Court justices without using a litmus test, right? Um, well, my litmus test is this, but I don't use a litmus test, but I want this kind of guy, but I'm not, I'm not telling you that I want a particular kind of um, guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, God, we as Christians ought to have some litmus tests. There, there, there are some big ticket items that are that you don't need. You don't need three PhDs in economics. You don't need three PhDs in foreign policy affairs to sort through who did what to whom. Right? The life issue is is the best example. Any any born again Christian who's literate and has read his Bible um, knows within, within the course of five minutes that that's an abomination, right? That is condemning innocent blood, that's devising evil by law, and the people who are doing that have no fellowship with God. And it's the prophetic role of the church to tell them that they have no fellowship with God and to be suspicious, in my view, of anything else they might want to tell us because it's so clear that they don't know what justice is Right. They don't know what righteousness is, they don't know what justice is, and they don't know what it is on the, on the most fundamental issue. So if they can't read the big E on the I chart, why would I read, ask them to try, have a try at the bottom line? Right. So 
These people frame evil by a law. They, they devise evil by a law. The fact that we hold to a distinction and governmental separation of church and state, and we, I think if we're careful Christians, we do hold to a separation of church and state, does not mean that we are insisting upon a separation of morality and state, or God and state, or Jesus and state. Those are different issues. Ecclesiastical government separated from civil government makes sense. Separating civil government from any established divine definition of justice is incoherent. All right, so we're not trying to separate Jesus and state. We're trying to separate church and state, one government from another. If we refuse to separate morality and state, then we must affirm the only source of all righteous law, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the second principle is this. Religiously neutral law cannot govern in the realm of politics. There's no such thing as neutrality. Okay? There's always a shared conviction. There's always a shared source of law. There's always a place to appeal to. And this goes back to my Hannity and Combs debate. Right? Um, you, 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 what doesn't happen in modern, in modern contemporary debate is one person saying, the polls say this, the American people feel this way, and the other person says, the American people be damned, the Bible says this. Nobody ever says, and, and if they did, the other one would say, did you just say be damned? Aren't you the Christian? Well, yes, but this is a, our, this is a concept in the Bible that's somewhat archaic. Um, but it, it, it is there, and we need to bring it out. The American people are not the authority, and all idols are going to topple like Dagon. And if the American people want to be an idol, then they may suit themselves. But we, we as Christians, have to back away from it and just say, no, no, in the name of Jesus, no. Third, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. But in the realm of politics, there's a sense in which we must respect our enemies, not just love them, we must respect them. The authorities which exist have been established by God. Those who kick against them, kick against God, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Political and moral opposition does not bring with it the option of lifting our hand against the Lord's anointed. Neither may we use our tongues against them in a way that blasphemes. The way some Christians have spoken of the president is monstrous, they have taunted him far too much and resisted him far too little. And that's true of President Clinton. It's also true of President Bush, although it's usually different groups that get hysterical. Uh, um, and when they get hysterical and they go off like a bottle rocket, it, it can either be um, Clinton's um, uh, court appointments or his misbehavior with uh, Lewinsky, and it could be um, those Christians who are opposed to the war in Iraq. Um, if they just off they, off they go, and they blaspheme against the Lord's anointed. The way, so this is, um, this is not right. Clearly, opposition or resistance to lawlessness in political office is allowed and required. John the Baptist rebuked Herod, and David resisted Saul. But do not rail against those whom you must oppose. Right? Uh, there's a great, great line in uh, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis where the king says, Peace, Eustace, do not scold like a kitchen girl. Courteous words or hard knocks are a warrior's only language. Either speak to him politely or knock him down. Nothing, you know, nothing else. Courteous words or hard knocks are his only language. But for us to be doing the fishmonger's wife, um, 
principle number three is we should fight, fight like Christians. Fourth, Christians need to be encouraged to vote their conscience. For many, for many, many years, Christians have been holding their noses and voting for the lesser of two evils. But as this pattern continues, today's lesser of two evils somehow turns out to be far worse than the worst option of 20 years ago. Okay? In other words, somebody's need to, somebody should recognize that this whole thing is a conveyor belt, and we need to, we need to figure out a way of jamming the conveyor belt, not uh, just not trying to wrestle for control of the speed of the conveyor belt. Right? Um, the Republic, someone has once said, this is simplistic also, but someone said there's two parties in Washington, the evil party and the stupid party. Um, and that's not quite right. But it, you, you've got uh, Democrats who want to drive us toward the abyss at 70 miles an hour, and the Republicans want to go 50. And Christians are giving up their, you know, giving all sorts of uh, effort and energy and time to try to get the um, Republicans in office, not because they then think they've got more time to try and stop the car entirely, but because they think that going toward the abyss at 50 miles an hour is what God wants us to do, right? Now, the thing, this is just crazy, right? This is crazy. There are Christians endorsing Rudy Giuliani for president a year, you know, like a year out, um, and they're endorsing Giuliani, who's pro-choice, because he will help us fight the war on terror. Well, what, what bad thing happened in the war on terror? Well, it, uh, yeah, it was a bad thing. The World Trade Centers went down. 3,000 people lost their lives. Well, under the abortion carnage, under the current pro-choice regime, that's how, many, that's how many Americans die every day, right? Every day. So Giuliani thinks that 9-11 every day is okay. 9-11 every day is all right. I support a woman's right to choose. But, and then you have Christians wanting to get him elected so that he can prevent leap year. One, one, you know, once every four years, we've got an extra day. Once every four years, an extra 3,000 Americans die. Someone ought to say, who cares about that anymore? You don't. You Christians don't? What are you doing? What are you talking about? So uh, we, need to, we need to work through this. That if we consistently, um, R.L. Dabney, uh, in two centuries ago, the 19th century, said there's a certain kind of conser conservatism that is only the shadow that follows radicalism to perdition. Right? It's, it's not going to be guilty of the folly of martyrdom. It's not ever going to take a stand. It's just going to growl and whine as we tag along behind the current system. Now, it's not my position, and I'm not going to do it to endorse any particular candidate or in, in urge you to vote for a particular candidate. But it is appropriate for me to say you should vote for those who fear the Lord. This is not a requirement that you find in someone who's not a sinner. In other words, the point is not to find someone who's never sinned. It's not saying um, I'm, you've got to vote for Jesus, and if Jesus isn't running, you can't vote for anybody. Um, scripture says, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, that's a big one, hating covetousness, and place over, such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. 
Principle number four, if you vote for political disobedience, don't complain when you get it. Okay? If you vote for political disobedience, if you vote for someone who says, I am not going to consult with the God of heaven and earth, I am going to have nothing, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to let that affect, uh, affect my decision making at all. And, and many times, Christians, things have gotten so bad that Christians have become encouraged be, uh, and they're willing to vote for someone who says that because they, they believe he's lying. <laughs> you know, he will let his faith inform his action, but he's just sort of going through the motions. Um, if you vote for political disobedience, don't complain when you get it. And last, Congress is not the light of the world, thank heavens, neither is Congress the salt of the earth. The reason our culture is falling apart is because the salt, the church, has lost its savor. Peter referred to this passage, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. When this happens, when, this, when the church has lost its saltiness, what does Jesus say? The church is trampled on by men, which is how the Lord wants it. Okay? There are times in history when the Lord wants the world to walk all over the church. And there's nothing we can do by mobilizing, signing petitions, getting organized. There's nothing that we can do that will keep the world from walking all over the church because if we're not salty, that's the only thing the world can do. If we're not salty, the world's going to walk all over the church. The only way to stop to have that, um, that contempt from being exercised is for a revival, a reformation, a miraculous intervention on God's part that makes the church salty again. When the church is salty again and the church is shining its light again, the world will listen. The world will back off and listen in respect, and we will be able to conduct the discipleship of the nations that we're commanded to do. The reformation of our culture cannot happen with the church in its current condition. Think for a moment. Former President Clinton is a Christian brother. You might say, oh, I don't know. Well, no, he's a baptized Christian, a member in good standing, and one of the largest Protestant denominations in the United States. His faith is a very deep and personal, precious thing to him. <laughs> Same with Hillary. Right? She's a Christian. Bush is a Christian. Right? About the only um, possible nominee um, uh, for president that's not a professing Christian is uh, Mitt Romney. And he would, well, he would say he's a professing Christian, but not in the historic orthodox sense. He's not a Trinitarian. So what does that tell you about the condition of the church? What does that tell you about who we're, we're, we're putting these people forward? We're producing these people. So having said this, um, that Christian, Clinton is a Christian brother, still is, um, some of you, oh, that can't be, no, that, no, 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 no. Well, he's, he's a member in good standing, and we didn't do anything about it, right? Why, why, do we pursue, why do we talk about impeachment before we talk about excommunication? Because that's where we're revealing the God of the system, right? We get outraged, and we want, we want the political structure to fix the essential problem, but the essential problem is the condition of the church. So how can we complain about culture and political corruption when we tolerate and even praise doctrinal and moral corruption within the church? So principle number five is that political answers are never political. They are political answers. I've said this 
another, I've said this in another way, that politics is not our savior, but politics will be saved. Politics is not our savior, but politics will be saved. And you cannot put the church as the polis in the middle of this sinful world without it having a huge dislocating effect on the cities of man. And that's going to happen over time, over centuries, over millennia. And as we labor toward that end, pray for that end, we should remember that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Second, religiously neutral law cannot govern in the realm of politics because there's no such thing as religiously neutral law. Three, it's not just important for us to hold to the right positions. It's important for us to hold to them the right way. We should fight like Christians fight honorably. Four, we can't complain if we get what we voted for. We can't, if we vote for political compromise and disobedience, we can't be upset if we get it. And then five, Jesus is the answer for politics, not politics being the answer for Jesus or for people who love Jesus. Our Father in God, thank you for our time together here now. Uh, please be with us, continue to be with us as we seek to work through the ramifications of all this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, Assuming the Center. If you'd like to hear more from that audio collection, you can find it at canonpress.com.